Hello, everybody, and welcome to what is currently sunny North Wales. And believe me when I tell you that that is not a regular occurrence. So it's quite celebratory here in terms of atmosphere. Um, it's actually a beautiful early evening here, and um, I'm absolutely delighted to spend part of this beautiful early evening with all of you. And we have a fantastic number of people currently listening in. So, oh goodness, hello, everybody. Ah. Ah, no, I know. Uh, hello to everybody, wherever you are, whoever you are, and whenever you are, because <laughs> we have so many different time zones out there. Okay, so many of you already know Trish Lambert. And if you don't, then what have you been doing? Have you been under a rock somewhere? Because Trish has been <laughs> around with Mythgard and then Signum for quite some time. Um, the, the part of the bedrock of Signum, I think we could Oh, actually, there we go. I like uh -huh. that. We could go ahead and say that, I think, because um, Trish has been around for quite some time since the start, really, and has had... Uh, a lot to do with the way in which Signum has been building over the last few years. And um, it was great fun working with her uh, over the last oh, little while, last year or so. Well, you um, also getting... taught me in a couple of courses, too. So you kind of knew yes. what you were getting into. You yeah, know, when you decided yeah. To be my uh, absolutely. <laughs> yes, I went in with my eyes wide open. <laughs> But um, on a, on a more academic note, uh, some of yes. you, by the way, will notice I'm wearing oh, some yeah, interesting decor. Oh, yeah, I just noticed decor. that. Good heavens. Yes, I know. Uh, this was from uh, punching people. Uh, <laughs> no, no, it wasn't. It was from falling over on the ice while ice skating oh, with no. my 18-year-old daughter, who probably bounces better than I would. But enough about me. It's all about Trish tonight, and we are going to be talking about Trish's fantastic thesis, which is on a subject that has not been touched on before in Signum. So, or probably uh, anywhere. I, I, I wonder actually, because well, I'll get yeah. into that a little bit later. But yeah, yeah. I, I do want to actually. Those of you who do know me, whether it's through Signum or through Lotro or whatever, all of you know Buddha, my parrot. And I do want to acknowledge that his cage is behind me, but he is not in his cage because he would be adding his more than two cents. So oh, yeah, I just yeah. he, let he you know he's not flown away. He's just, yeah. Yes, he's just elsewhere. So. Yes. <laughs> I, I think we can, Buddha is all present and all yes, known, yes. but not currently yes. in the room. Right, not yeah. currently in the room. Yes. Okay. That's true. Okay. All right. So uh, we've kept you waiting for long enough, and that is more than enough from me because it is all over to Trish now. So Trish, first of all, can I ask you just to introduce yourself a little bit and just talk very, very quickly uh, about your thesis, give us a brief overview, and okay. explain a little bit about what led you to this topic. Okay, well, I have been a Tolkien fan since, oh my gosh, we don't even want to talk. Talk about bedrock, you know, I'm like the Flintstones. I mean, I read uh, The Hobbit when I was, I think, in seventh grade, and uh, I've just been a Tolkien fan ever since. Um, became, as many folks I'm sure here were, uh, a Tolkien professor fan because I discovered his podcasts uh, back, oh my gosh, Tori's been doing those for so long, and was on hand when he began to form, uh, at the time, Mythgard, which then became Signum. And it was actually, you know, I was like, gosh, that's really an interesting idea. Getting a master's degree, Tolkien studies, perfect. And um, so I thought, why not? And that's the beginning of where, you know, we're now at this point because of that happening. Um, my vocation in life has been mainly marketing. So in business marketing and also 
today I am now a freelance copywriter. So writing is really my passion. So that's what I'm doing as a vocation. And uh, this whole thing with uh, Signum has been pretty much a labor of love. Um, my, uh, the title of my thesis, and I have to look over here because it's one of those long academic titles. You know, I would never write this as a marketer, <laughs> but as an academic, you have to write long titles. The Reach of the White Hand, Literary Analysis of Stories of Dunland and Rohan in the Lord of the Rings Online. So what that is, is um, Lord of the Rings Online is a video game. It's a, mul it's a massively multiplayer online game. So it's, what that means is it's not a, like a PS2, it's not a PlayStation thing. It's, it's actually web Del delivered over the web and people from literally all over the world play in the game and you are actually in the game concurrently with all these other players so it's a very interesting experience but even more interesting to me is the fact that it it tracks the story of the lord of the rings so as the player as the protagonist i mean when i read lord of the rings didn't i want to and didn't so many people want to I want to be there. I want to be part of the story. You know, gosh, you know, fan fiction, you write yourself into the story, right? Well, Lord of the Rings Online actually puts you in the story as sort of a side helper. So you're sort of working uh, uh, as the fellowship is moving, you know, toward its goals. You're helping sort of clear the way and helping other, you know, uh, uh, societies. The thing is, um, when you get to Rohan and Dunland, Tolkien didn't, oh, and, the developers stay very close to, to Tolkien. That's one of the things I really admire about them. And I know Corey's talked about this before too. They are very conscientious about staying really true to his subcreation. So you don't get to have, you know, dragons as steeds and you don't have, you know, you don't have a magic wand. I mean, it all works within Middle Earth and its lore and its history and whatnot. But when you get to Rowan and Dunland, especially Dunland, Tolkien didn't really write a whole lot. I mean, I think we have like maybe one sentence about Dunland. We have one word in Dunlandish. And even Rohan, other than, you know, the track through the grasslands meeting Eomir and then going to Edoras, you don't really know a lot about Rohan. I mean, there's not a lot there. However, when you think about it, there would have to be, you know, I mean, there would have to be farmers. There would have to be somebody tending the horses. There would have to be villages, you know, this kind of thing. Well, you know, you can imagine. And I, when I got to Dunland and Rohan, I was really impressed because it was, they were fully, you know, as, as a business, like a, like a game would have to, right. They got to keep their players engaged. They would need to, to really fill this, this, land out beyond what Tolkien gave them. But I think what really impressed me was the fact that it was all still done very much within the context of Tolkien's subcreation. And I was I had the good fortune to be able to interview Chris Pearson, who's the Lotro world builder, who's really sort of the Tolkien lore guy for the developer uh, as part of this thesis. And I was just never ending impressed. I mean, you as a Welsh person would love the fact that he actually based the Dunlendings on the Welsh Celts. Mm -hmm. And there's even a, there's even a, um, uh, a group uh, quest in Dunland that you have to actually go kill Dragoch, which is named after the Welsh Red Dragon. And uh, he was really, really good about, uh, and then the, the, the Rohirrim, of course, are Anglo-Saxons. Anyway, so the thing is, great, so you've got this land. How do you engage the players? And I found myself very engaged. So this was kind of a situation where as a player, I found myself engaged. And then I went back and thought, what has engaged me? And I realized whether they meant to or not, 
the developers took a very literary approach to the stories that they gave us in Rohan and Dunland. And the overarching umbrella of the stories they gave us was the impact, the unseen, mainly unseen impact of Saruman on these two areas. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of almost like they started there and said, how would these lands, how would these people be reacting to this kind of what some people think is actually benevolent force, but we all know is really evil. And um, they were really, what they did, whether they knew it or not, drew from literary archetypes that all of us would recognize. And so the stories they told in the very various villages in Dunland and in Rohan, and the stories around the people there, they're all original stories, but they all kind of had this um, well, most of them, I mean, there were a couple other stories that I pulled in too that were archetypes, but the betrayer stories were all kind of uh, reflections of sort of how this impact would play out and very engaging. And so I was like, when I got to think of it, I thought, this is really literary and, and you know, they're really using archetypes. In other words, there are things that I primarily respond to as the reader protagonist in the game. Um, very engaging. You get yourself very invested with these relationships. And it's 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 just this amazing extension of Tolkien's work. So, you know, underlying all this in this particular game, my 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 assertion is that video games can be literary. I mean this there is a very there's a very literary aspect to the way these stories unfold elsewhere in the game as well but Dunlan and Rohan are especially uh useful because they're they're so you know they're so thinly sketched by Tolkien that that you know these are really good examples of how um how the developers really in, engage the player in a in a literary experience so that's mm -hmm. you know and so in the in my thesis I actually specifically look at certain stories in Dunlan and Rohan and I uh, I um, illustrate the, the archetypes by drawing from both classic, what I mean by classic is pre 20th century and also more modern stories um, to, to show, you know, here are the archetypes, you'd recognize them from this story and that story. And then here it is in Lotro and it's, you know, the, the parallels are, are unmistakable. Okay, I'm really interested in what you just said about how video games are a new form of literature. Uh, can you go into a little bit more detail about how Happy to they do are? It. <laughs> yeah. Thought you might well, be. Yeah, I, you know, I think I. It, this is really what I discovered in the course of doing my thesis. Is I'm really passionate about how modern day audiences interact with stories, with literature, and so first of all, I will say that I will. I think I can confidently state that during Shakespeare's time, his plays were not considered literature. In fact, plays themselves, I don't think were considered literature. They were on the south side of the Thames with the brothels, decadent life, you know, it was just not, academics of the time were not looking at those plays as, you know, literature. So things change, you know, it didn't used to be that movies were considered literature or, you know, uh, you know, TV shows even. I mean, you know, it's been those, that's been, those are relatively recent additions to sort of the body of literature. And I honestly think the newest thing here is, is video games. Now I'm saying, you know, not every book is, is literary, not every film is literary, not every play is literary, not every game is literary, but there is a literary component, I think, to video games. I actually believe that this is how, this is one of the ways in which audiences are going to be consuming literature. 50 years, 100 years down the line, it's not, it's like with Shakespeare's plays, you know, they're not even gonna, 
it's not even going to be a controversy that games or graphic novels, you know, gosh, by that time, we'll probably have virtual reality. So, you know, we'll be actually living the stories ourselves. But I do think that this is part of the evolution. It's kind of a literary evolution and the ways that audiences uh, consume their stories. Mm -hmm. I think that video games are definitely now part of that collection of media, if you will. So, okay, I, so I have no question about that. So where is the line then? What qualifies certain video games like Loto, for example, as literature? What makes them qualify for that? You know, I was thinking about that this morning because the truth is we could ask that same question about a book, right? I mean, what qualifies, what is literature? And um, I think part of it is this whole archetype uh, idea, you know, that that there, there are archetypes. And actually, let me, I'm going to um, just look over to the side here so I can get, because I want to get the, the definite um, uh, quote from, uh, um, when I looked at archetype, Okay, literary archetypes. I think that's really the, one of the biggest things uh, is that there is uh, an archetype. And then what is an archetype? Okay, good question. Well, here we go. I got it. Okay, so when I went to look at, okay, so define an archetype, that's going to be easy. Not so easy, actually. I mean, I have found multiple definitions of archetypes. And actually, when you when you talk about literature, it's a very, very slippery term, in mm -hmm. fact. But um, what I found was Umberto Eco wrote uh, this uh, that hits the mark for me. He said, it's a pre-established and frequently reappearing narrative situation that is recycled by innumerable other texts and provokes in the addressee a sort of intense emotion accompanied by a vague feeling of deja vu that everyone yearns to see again. So in other words, it's, it's a never, uh, never gets old kind of motif that gets repeated through, you know, through narratives. Now that's, I was thinking about it again this morning and I thought, well, I mean, you could say that that's true of a lot of things that you, you know, repetitive narratives. I think it's more than that, though. I think that this part about the intense emotion and the deja vu, it's something that really we respond to as readers. So if we think about even literature and books, you know, not all books are literature, not all films are literature, but there are definitely those that have lived on. Shakespeare, I mean, there were plenty of other playwrights other than Shakespeare. Oh, this is the point I was thinking about this morning. So there were plenty of other playwrights at Shakespeare. Why is it that Shakespeare has come down the, the, the years you know, Tolkien, I think, is the same way. There's been a lot of fantasy written, yet yet his work is is you know as if not more so compelling today as it as it was 50 years ago. I think there's something about genius in there. <laughs> there's something about you know the author's genius that um, I, I don't know. I think there's probably people that have looked into this you know a lot more than I have in terms of what makes literature. But I think that same yardstick, I think that whatever it is that makes literature in a book or a film is the same yardstick for a video game. Um, I've played other games and I've played story-based games like Star Trek Online and, and Star Wars The Old Republic and they're good games and they're you know, they're, they're story-based. What I mean by that is they're, they're based on another canon like Lord of the Rings mm -hmm. Online is. Not all games are that way. These are based on an already established canon and they're they're good games but I don't find them as in engaging and compelling as I find Lord of the Rings online. I don't know if it's because I have a particular token bias, but I tend to think it's more along the lines of how the developers actually developed the game. You know, they did a, I think they did a better job, frankly, of, of staying true to the, um, 
to the motifs of the canon story, but also adding their own to it. Does that make sense? Anyway, yeah. I, yeah. I don't know if I answered the question, but I think it's, I think it's whatever yardstick we measure any kind of literature can be applied to, to video games. Okay, um, got an interesting <laughs> got an interesting point uh, just popped into the question box here. Phil Boswell comments that um, th that's kind of assuming that the archetype is always positive. Sometimes we never want to see it again. What would be your response to that when you were talking about the archetypes being positive? I can't imagine if we don't want to see the archetype again. I don't know that that would that piece of work would end up being literature <laughs> because people would not go back to read it. I mean, the archetype, as Echo is saying, it's it's a deja vu that everyone yearns to to experience again. You know, it's okay. it's a it's a it's a it's a motif, it's a theme, it's a concept that the reader can't get enough of, kind of thing. You know, think about star-crossed lovers. You know, Romeo and Juliet. I mean, how many other stories? You know, Abelard and Eloise. I mean, even a classic. You know, that's a that's an archetypal relationship that we can't get enough of. Um, even bad guys, you know, even the evil architects, which actually a lot of what I treated in my thesis has to do with with bad guy archetypes, are still archetypes that we will read about over and over and over mm -hmm. again. So I'm not sure that there's a way of like it might not be an archetype if you read it and it's like I don't ever want to see it again. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Going by my definition anyway. Okay, so we've got this broad background now to why you were drawn to both Lotro and to talking about your thesis. So let's start pulling into the thesis itself. Could you go into for us um, what the central argument of your thesis is? Well, I the, so really it was demonstrating this literary quality, kind of what you and I've been talking about. And the basis of my, you know, assertion that Lotro is literary is the fact that they're using archetypes, whether they meant to or not, they ended up using these literary archetypes. So then I, I actually went into the specific archetypes. And um, interestingly enough, I had a, for as far as like the, the Saruman related archetypes, I had a very convenient source to go to for archetypes, Dante Alighieri, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, he wrote uh, the Inferno and his, circles uh, eighth, eighth and ninth circles of hell have the betrayers and the traitors and it was like i could match up stories in lotro i mean it was like i wouldn't be surprised the developers hadn't gone and read inferno before they started to write the stories they were so well matched up but again i think i think what i'm saying here is these were archetypes you know and i and and actually mike drought who was my second reader on my thesis who's a medievalist and you know is a person who knows dante said you know there's a talk about why this Dante's you know uh, persisted all this time, and actually I did find some works that said you know his he's persisted. He's another literary person whose genius, you know, he wrote this allegory. Yet it's it still is with us today, and it's still very much um, recognizable. In fact, one of the other sources that I used besides Dante's work is a book by um, Jerry Purnell and Larry Niven called uh, Inferno. And it was mm -hmm. like a modern day version, but it was still Dante's hell. They just had different characters and different people representing the, the, the archetypes. So those archetypes actually matched up. So for example, and I have my little list here. So, so for example, in the eighth circle of hell, we had um, the evil counselors, which I think everybody would recognize. We could probably all say it in unison, you know, is Grima, Wormtongue. Um, and then we had the Sowers of Discord, which is another one that we see in Lotro. Now, interestingly enough, of all the, 
archetypes that I talk about, of all the traitor archetypes, Grima is the only one in Lord of the Rings Online that we actually recognize from uh, from Lord of the Rings. Everybody else is actually are actually characters from the game, which again mm -hmm. for me is just a really good example of how well they did. So evil counselor, sorrows of discord, those are the eighth circle. And then the traitors are traitors to uh, kindred, traitors to guests, traitors to lord and king. Um, we have all of those in in um, in Lord of the Rings Online. And then I actually came up with what I called the comprehensive traitor, which is sort of somebody that would like be across all of those. They'd be comfortable in all those spots. Um, and I pulled so that the so that the reader could recognize, you know, yes, okay, here's this archetype. For example, Swords of Disc uh, Evil Counselor Loki from the Norse mythologies, and I use Neil Gaiman's Norse mythologies, is an example from from classic times. And Sauron is a good, you know, especially in his Anatar days and his Numenor days, was my example of an evil counselor. So it's that, you know, that that malevolent force behind the throne kind of thing. And then of course Grima, um, that's the most obvious one again, because it shows up in Lord of the Rings on uh, Lord of the Rings as well as Lord of the Rings online. Sowers of Discord, um, Edmund from King Lear is a perfect example. I mean, he's just a mischief maker as is Agravain in T.H. White's uh, Once and Future King. And then in, in the game we have, there's a story where there's a guy who just is, he's one of Grima's men and he is uh, basically just creating havoc partly because he can, he just can. So he just does it, you know? So it's it's that kind of thing. I don't know if you want me to go through all of the examples here, but um, but the, the point is there's like six or seven stories in Lotra that I use as examples to show and to tie to classic stories and stories that, that we would know in the 20th century as well that play this kind of archetype out. Okay, um, we've got a, a couple of questions coming into the uh, the question oh, board about this. Yeah, <laughs> great. Um, Timothy Fisher would like to know what keeps an archetype from becoming a cliche or repetitious in a negative sense. I was trying to think about that because you know there's another term called trope that we use mm -hmm. a lot, and I I I actually kind of agonized about this a little bit when I was talking when I was working on my thesis. You know what what separates an archetype from a trope, or what separates an archetype from a cliche. I apologize, ranch worker on the ranch today. Oh, that's okay. I informed. had my husband walk in five minutes ago, so oh, okay, the fine. Okay. Just as on nothing. <laughs> At least it's not Buddha. Um, again, I think it's probably. I don't really have. I don't know that I have a really good answer to that. I mean, mm -hmm. archetypes for me are more primal. I mean, they're more, like I say, I don't even know that the developers were aware what they were doing at the time they were making these stories. Um, you know, if you talk to one of those guys, they'd probably say, well, we knew we needed this kind of guy, right? And so that's almost cliche. We needed somebody who was a betray, you know, would betray his, you know, his, his, his thing. That's almost cliche. But then the way they actually created the story was much more engrossing and much more emotionally, there was much more emotional investment on the part of the player experiencing the story that may be the difference is the ability of the author again back to the genius of the author to to create an experience for the reader that goes beyond just that sort of almost two-dimensional cliche mm -hmm. trope kind of thing i mean think about the people that have written fantasy stories since tolkien right and I would say there have been any number of authors that I've read that it's like I didn't know I didn't complete the book because of just what Timothy's saying. You know, it wasn't a, an engaging. It was more cliche than engaging. Mm -hmm. um, 
And I almost wonder if that's not subjective too on the part of the reader. So an, a, another thing that creates these classics and these literature is kind of enough readers agree <laughs> that there was emotional, you know, investment or whatever, enough mm -hmm. people reading the work agree that it becomes literature. And I don't necessarily know. I think, you know, one reader maybe could think it's cliche and another not. So I don't know. I think there's some popular agreement involved in that as well. Mm -hmm. Do you think uh, it could be a bit about, oh gosh, I'm blinding everybody enough to go into I know. The I, no, second. actually, it looks kind of dramatic. Gosh, I, this is, I yeah, I know. No, it's really kind of cool. There's like <laughs> this big thing of light there. It's like, no, it's, well, it's almost like well-timed to be talking I about, know. you know, literature and archetypes and woo! <laughs> anyway, uh, um, do you think it's got something to do with, um, it's not just having, well, we need this kind of trope within the story. The difference between that and literary allusion, actually reaching out to those other stories uh, and not just having a figure, but having a resonance with those other stories. Do you think it might be something like that? I, I think so. You know, I think so. Um, one of the other one of the other um, stories that I use, and it's not one of the betrayer stories. It's a it's a story about Nerzum, who's this big monster who is uh, uh, creating havoc in a section of Rohan. And he's actually a creation of Saruman. So for my archetypes, it was actually Frankenstein's monster is my classic and the island of Dr. Moreau, which is I considered, even though it's like the tail end of the 19th century, it was really more of a 20th century story. And the thing about that is when Chris and I were talking, Chris was saying that Nurzum is their Beowulf, mm -hmm. that they actually had Beowulf in mind when they created Nurzum. Now, I... I actually put that as a footnote because for me, actually, the story is much more similar, I think, to Frankenstein's monster or the island of Dr. Moreau. You know, this creation, it's a creation of man as opposed to being a, a you know, a demon like, like Beowulf. But it was their hat tip to Beowulf. And that's kind of what they had in their mind. You know, they had a Beowulf kind of counterpart in the story. And, um, and that's kind of what drove them. And I do think, you know, and of course, the developers always had Tolkien as their anchor point you know, which I think also helps with this literary quality, you know, they, they kind of quality controlled against Tolkien's sub-creation. So, mm -hmm. you know, for them, they kind of had a leg up, you know, where if a developer was sub-creating from nothing, I think it'd be a lot more challenging to make it literary as opposed to just cliche. So I think you're probably right there, you know, allusion back, allusion back to Tolkien specifically, allusion back to, um, to uh, uh, Beowulf, the 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 Dunland and Rohan, and this is actually played out in the Starcross Lovers archetype, which is a, a Rohirrim man and a Dunlending woman fall in love, and of course it doesn't play out well amongst either side. Very Romeo and Juliet-ish, which is mm -hmm. my classic one. Um, we had the the Anglo-Saxons and the Celts. You know, one of the reasons why Chris selected the Celts as the Dunlending culture was because in history, the Anglo-Saxons basically overran the Celts historically and took their land and, you know, pushed them out, which was what the Dunlending's complaint was per Tolkien, you know, against the Rohirrim. So they even pulled from history on that as well, which I think is really smart. Um, and then, you know, in Rohan itself, the villages that we visit, they did pretty much base on sort of Anglo-Saxon society, 
uh, as much as they could. Uh, what I mean by that is they made sure that a lot there were a lot more women in authority than we may have seen in Anglo-Saxon times mm-hmm. for the game. But that's a commercial thing. <laughs> I mean, it's like you're not going to get a lot of women playing the game if you don't have women in authority figures in in uh, in Rohan and Lord of the Rings Online. But I do think you're right. I think you're right. I think it is that um, harking back to, you know, having your story sort of hark back to or filter through or however you want to like say that mm-hmm. um to something else i think absolutely uh, so resonates with these other absolutely. texts rather than yes. simply taking a trope from them i do mm-hmm. i do think you know and let i mean that's the thing that i again i find so amazing with any piece of literature quite frankly but you know with this game in particular is the fact that they were able to do that in a way that resonates and we're not saying oh you know that's like so contrived or that's just that thing that's just that trope Uh, i never did i mean there may be people who play the game that do but i actually became very uh invested sort of in all the relationships that i ended up creating through my character with all these people in rohan and dunland okay we've got more questions which is oh my gosh matthew (laughs) forest says an associated archetype question says one of the things that lotro resists is the standard d and d archetypes there is no paladin more mallory than tolkien i guess right, available to play a character for example how much do you think the literary classification you place lotro in is associated with that resistance meaning that they they actually have like turned their back on sort of the traditional uh, well i mean in much the same way i suppose that um I was going to say that I was, I was going to say that Tolkien turned his back on, but actually Tolkien's kind of the root <laughs> of, mm-hmm. of modern day fantasy, you know, um, even, even he was looking backwards. Of course. Yeah. Even he was looking tradition. backwards. I think, um, I think probably a lot of the literary, like I said, I think they had a leg up because of the fact that they are staying so absolutely, you know, conscientiously consistent with Tolkien subcreation. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of things that you're just not going to see, you know, you're not going to see the same sorts of um, uh, motifs and concepts that you would in a D&D situation or in a, in a um, Guild Wars type, you know, game situation. Um, you know, like I know uh, some of the, some of the uh, material that I researched about games, because I was actually looking at games kind of in general, just to sort of understand where Lotro sort of fit according to sort of gamers, if you will, or game pundits into, um, you know, the larger thing is one of the things, you know, that's, it's not a complaint, but it's an observation about Lotro is you don't have magical powers, you know, you don't get to like cast spells and special effects. I mean, there is a little bit of that, but compared to other games like Final Fantasy or something like that, it's not even close. So I think, but I think the reason, again, I think that's kind of to Matthew's point, you know, we don't have that kind of stuff. Actually, to tell you the truth, when Lotro, feeling the pressure to have some of that kind of thing, opened a class called Runekeeper. And they tried to keep as close as they could to Tolkien in the sense that the Runekeeper, you know, is like a rune expert and they use runes to do their, but they do do magic. Oh my goodness, the Lotro community just about had a fit because it wasn't, (laughs) you know, this doesn't fit into tokens works so you know i i guess i have to feel like sympathetic to the developers because on the one hand they have a leg up with token story but on the other hand they, there's a lot they can't do because the the player community just absolutely won't won't stand for it mm-hmm. so that could also be matthew the other thing is sort of almost a self-policing thing <laughs> where they're going to lose customers if they actually go D with lord of the rings online <laughs> well, they are very different immersive worlds aren't they Yes, very different. Very different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah. Okay. Well, um, in fact, we've got a, a question about quality, for example, from Sharon Hoff. She says, do you find that the prose of the scripts written by the developers to convey the story to be of higher quality that strengthens the content of Lotro, or is the underlying connection to Tolkien's genius that which elevates it? Oh, that's a good question. Sharon might remember that when we were, I forget what we were, if, was it with, with exploring Lord of the Rings or when, when Corey was taking Grifflet through, um, he was disappointed that the developers didn't use the same meter for Tom Bombadil that, <laughs> that Tolkien used in his, in his dialogue. Um, I think that the developers have done a heck of a good job, but you know, again, they had Tolkien to kind of springboard from. Uh, interestingly enough, they can't really use copy from the text. You know, they can't use Tolkien verbatim. They don't have the rights for that. They have the rights for the, you know, they have like kind of like more the visual rights and the names and things like that, but they don't have rights to the actual copy of the books. So they have to write in parallel kind of. So when you're going to, for example, you get to see the fellowship off in Rivendell and you have the scene in the courtyard when Boromir blows his horn and Elrond says, you know, please don't do that. <laughs> um, the scene that you experience in the game is the same scene, but the, but the dialogue is different because they can't use from the, from the book. And I would say, you know, just thinking of that scene as a good example, it's as evocative as the book is. I mean, I think mm -hmm. the developers have done a good job of, you know, being true to sort of the prose style and the dialogue style. Um, I wouldn't put them on this, this is, I mean, I wouldn't put them on the same level as Tolkien just because, probably just because I'm biased. I mean, he was just a master of this kind of stuff, but he kind of wrote oftentimes a very elevated prose anyway. And I don't know that that would really work for a game, you know, mm -hmm. game, you know, quest copy and, and dialogue and stuff. But I think they, they do a pretty good job. And I, I actually wanna, you know, I think my hat's off to Chris uh, for sure. And, and a number of the other developers, I think they're very conscientious. Chris has shared with us that he oftentimes is like the Tolkien conscience among the developers, <laughs> that if they get an idea, you know, that's too far astray, he pulls them back in and says, no, you can't do that. And I think it's good to have that kind of QA. And I'm sure that he's not alone. I'm sure there are other developers as well. So it's, it's nice that you have these developers who aren't just, gee, let's take this, this, you know, world and then we'll just have our way with it. And actually, I think lately it's even been more um, challenging for them because we are in the game, we are past the, the destruction of the ring. And so it's almost into fan fiction now where the developers are having to create stories that go past the end of Lord of the Rings. And I think they're doing a really good job of it because, you know, I mean, they're having to st still stay true to the subcreation and mm -hmm. I'll bet you it's a heck of a lot more challenging. Mm. Right. I'm going to bring you back to your thesis again. Um, <laughs> so um, were there elements that you wanted to include in your thesis, but ended up not being able to? You had to yeah. kill your darlings there a little bit. I did. You know, I actually did go down one road. Um, well, actually, there was a lot more examples that I wanted to give because as I was going through, you know, the archetypes and going through classic stories and, and modern stories, there were a lot more examples that I wanted to give. But between you and Mike, you reined me in <laughs> and said, you know, we don't need a complete laundry list. And you're right. You know, we don't. We just needed some examples to show it. But there were a lot more that I wanted to delve into. And one of the books that I really wanted to include and uh, and actually had developed quite a bit on was American Gods by Neil Gaiman, mm -hmm. because that's actually an Odin Loki story um, in modern day terms with, with Wednesday and Loki Lysmith. And for a long time, I had that story in my thesis, you know, as as this great um, um, parallel to Saruman and Wormtongue. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. And I had started to really go down this road of comparing Wednesday and Loki Lysmith to Sermon and Wormtongue. And because their, uh, their relationship in American gods is actually different than in Norse mythology. It really is more of a Saruman Grima kind of relationship. And then I started to expand that out and say, gee, you know, dastardly duos, you know, there are others like Morgoth Sauron, you know, during mm -hmm. the first and second ages uh, or first ages. Um, you know, and I thought, well, gosh, I bet there's more of that. So I sort of got a little bit deviate. You know, I started to go down that road and then it was like, no, this this is just not on, on track. You know, I can't do it. So I did have to kill my darlings, unfortunately. I still got the notes and someday I may do something about dastardly duos in literature, but it is not this day. Sounds like a paper topic to me. I know it is a paper topic. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, on that idea, um, so besides this dastardly duos idea, were there other topics that you came across, you stumbled across during your actual work for your thesis that you'd like to take Let's further I, somewhere else? Let me see if I, I think I made some notes. I wrote some stuff down. Well, you know, just being able to get more into the, um, the archetypes was really the big one uh, besides the dastardly duo. You know, I really kind of wanted to delve further into this and I would have loved to have, to have actually expanded maybe even more to show other examples in Lotro because it's, you know, the quality that I'm talking about here, the use of, of archetypes isn't just limited to Rohan and Dunlin, but I, oh, well, I'll tell you the other one that I thought that I really enjoyed, and I, I went into a little bit of detail on this, but I really liked the fact that there was a lot of thought going into how would a land be impacted by the influence of somebody like Saruman? Mm-hmm. And uh, this is a little, and it was too far off topic for me to go into in much detail about, but, you know, how would there be, you know, there would, where there's one Grima, there's going to be more than one, you know, there's also going to be people that are misguided thinking that Saruman really is benevolent and maybe, you know, and they see that their king is, is, is hurting and, and that the land is hurting as a result of their king being, you know, being uh, uh, compromised. And um, many don't realize that Grima is doing what he's doing. So you've got these factions, you know, that different people are going to have different opinions. And, uh, and then also in the Dunland side too, which, you know, Saruman has basically, holds sway over all of Dunland, you know, they're mm -hmm. basically his resource for so much of, you know, his armies and whatnot. Um, that it, the problem is this more went into sort of almost sociology or, or history more than it did mm -hmm. literature, you know, to talk about the way that, that the developers really thought, thought really well about what would, what kind of impact would that have on a culture and on a people? So that, kind of got me a little bit sidetracked too but then I had to come back and go that is not literary <laughs> that is something different <laughs> so it sounds like you learned quite a lot just from the process of writing this master's thesis would you agree with that uh, yeah definitely I definitely did I mean I think my idea with the with even the archetypes I don't even think going into it I realized it was as thorough as it was I mean uh, you know this whole idea of there being this very, you know, primal recognition, you know, Campbell kind of talks about it when he talks about archetypes and his, his comparative mythologies, you know, that there's these motifs that go across cultures and things. And it's, it was that, I mean, I just, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't think I had really, I think I underestimated the extent to which those motifs and concepts 
not show up in literature, you know, not talking about comparative mythology, but talking about literary works mm -hmm. and how, you know, you can reach back into Greek plays even and, and, you know, see these same motifs. It's just amazing to me. So that was, that was really interesting. And, um, and then in the game itself, really, I came to really recognize a lot deeper, uh, things to admire in the game you know i mean it's, it's it's a game yes but it's also i mean this was outside the 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 realm of what i studied but an example that i use in my footnote is i cry every time theodred dies you're actually with theodred when he dies at the at the fords of Isen, mm -hmm. and i can't tell you how many players i've taken through i cry every time because the the storytelling is so good that the developers do that you have this relationship with Theoden's son that when he dies, you're just devastated. I mean, I can't believe I, every, I cry every time. <laughs> um, so, you know, I was just, again, reminded of how engaged they're able to make me anyway. And I think a lot of folks that play Lotro, you know, we just get really engaged with the stories. Mm -hmm. So that, that was something that I learned probably at a new depth. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, in terms of producing your thesis, what would you say was the most challenging aspect of that for you? I wrote that down. What did I say? <laughs> what did I say about that? Challenging. Oh, yes. No, this was very challenging, I felt. There's not a lot. There was a lack of academic resources about mm -hmm. Lord of the Rings Online and actually kind of games in general. What I did find in academia related to games in particular, were not literary. I, I think mm -hmm. I kind of referred to this obliquely when we first started out. I don't know that there has been another academic work treating a video game in a literary context. The academic works that I found had more to do with audience perception, um, had more to do with the ludic aspects. In other words, the game playing kind of mechanics of the game and how audiences related to that. So it wasn't really looking at the literary, specifically at the literary pieces. Mm -hmm. um, so that was a little bit challenging, but the good news is, is that I then kind of expanded out and started to look at the academic uh, works around Jackson's films. Mm -hmm. And interestingly enough, a lot, and the one that comes to mind in particular is Dimitra Fimi wrote a, a, an essay about the um, uh, folklore uh, attached to Jackson's films. And mm -hmm. I found that uh, what she described there very much applied to Lotro. So a lot of what's written about audience reception to films or how the films got put together or what works in the films or that kind of thing really uh, applies to Lotro. So fortunately, <laughs> I was able to find, um, you know, good literary uh, treatment of the films that I felt I could, uh, you know, in good conscience, move over to the, to, to the game. But it was frustrating mm -hmm. at first to not be able to find a lot of yeah. literary treatment of, of this game okay. or any game really for that matter. <laughs> So we have more questions in the more question questions. board. Yeah, Yay! questions. Okay. Well, a couple of comments actually. First of all, from Phil Boswell, um, I thought I'd pass along to you. He says, "We're going to have fun in a little while when Grifflet reaches Wildemore." Oh, indeed. When Grifflet takes on Nurzum, <laughs> <laughs> it'll be a true David and Goliath story. Uh, he also comments that uh, for him, the dialogue in the game seems more realistic, not having been cleaned up by Findigil, etc. Would you agree with that? <laughs> yes, I think I would. I think it's probably more natural. <laughs> it hasn't been, yeah, it hasn't been sifted through Findigil and Mary and whoever else, you know, um, decided to, you know, to to polish it up. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's uh, more in, in real time sort of thing. So I've got a, another question from Matthew DeForest. He says, part of the study of literature, head canon aside, is the shared experience, a common source text shared by its readers. How does the ability of a player to tell their own stories within the context of the game impact your work? You know, I kind of talk about that. I'm not. I'm going to test this and see if this actually hits what Matthew's talking about. Um, one of the things that Demetra talks about in her treatment of the films is the folklore of the audience, mm -hmm. and what she means by that is that the audience. And this is actually something that. That, oh, this is actually something else that I learned was my passion for this particular topic, is how the viewing audience, how the reader audience or the viewing audience in turn then impacts the root story. So for example, her example in, uh, in the uh, Lord of the Rings movies was the character of Figwit, which mm. is Frodo is great, who is that, right? And it was just this extra standing behind Elrond during the Council of Elrond, but the audience reaction to this elf actually turned it into a character, yeah. very, <laughs> you know, very, became a character yeah, of Figwit, exactly. right? And yeah. um, the same kind of phenomenon is happening in Lord of the Rings Online. And mm -hmm. I say, I, I, I kind of refer to this in my thesis is that the player population has actually added lore or added cultural tidbits to Middle Earth Mm -hmm. as a result of their playing Lord of the Rings. And I'm not, I've learned Rings Online, I'm not sure how much Tolkien would appreciate the fact that, you know, we're, it's pretty well known that rangers tend to be lazy and give their jobs to other people. <laughs> that's, one, that's one of the things from the game. Hobbits love pies, which is something Tolkien never wrote about. Um, you know, uh, it, so there's actually lore being, you know, being created in the game that, mm -hmm that's kind of, you know, feeding back to the root story. And, you know, we've seen that with the movies as well, you know, where I see all the time with folks with Tolkien, and I even sometimes forget, was that in the movie or the book? You know, did, did Gandalf say that in the movie or was it in the book mm -hmm. sort of thing, you know, or the you shall not pass thing, you know, which he never said actually verbatim in the book. Um, so it's been really interesting for me to see that. And I think, you know, for Lord of the Rings Online, like I said, it, it's it's not so much an individual player creating that, but it's the body, you know, it's the population, it's the community of players have, mm -hmm. you know, we have uh, sort of standing jokes about, and there's also jokes about particular characters in the game that don't show up in, in Tolkien, but that we know from the game. So there's this whole other sort of, you know, uh, lore that's kind of cropped up um, as a result of the players having their experience of the game. And I don't know that that answers Matthew's question, but hopefully he'll tell us whether that does or not. Okay, um, just a, another little comment from Phil Boswell uh, talking about Figwit, and he says that's Brett from Flight of the Concords, which of course oh. it is. <laughs> <laughs> that's right, I'd forgotten that. Somebody had told me that and I forgot about that. That's hilarious. Yes. Yeah. Okay, so Sarah Lagarde has a question for you. Um, and uh, I, don't know, I don't know if you can see the question board yourself, Trish. But, I probably uh, can, actually. You should be able to pop that out as you've been made a presenter, but yeah. uh, it's the one question I've left in the board there, and it's quite lengthy, so if you can uh, read it for yourself, right. that's oh, probably useful, okay. but I'll, I'll read it out for the, the audience at large. Um, it says, which of Tolkien's sometimes a bit contradictory letters, bit, do you reference <laughs> in your thesis regarding Tolkien's acceptance of adaptations and further development of his worlds. I'm looking now at the September 1954 letter to Naomi Mitchison. Yours is the only comment that I've seen that besides treating the book as a literature and even taking it seriously, 
also sees it as an elaborate form of the game of inventing a country, an endless one, because even a committee ex of experts in different branches could not complete the overall picture. <laughs> Little did he know, right? Mm. I actually don't think I referred to any of his letters. I'm trying mm. to remember. I may have. Seems like I did have it in my bibliography, so I can't remember. The um, the thing that stuck with me in his letters, and I think that was an excellent quote, and I wish I had remembered that one, but the one that I remember has to do with his um, his reactions to the Zimmerman script for Lord of the Rings and his statement mm -hmm. of staying true to the core. I can't get it exactly right because I don't have it in front of me, but like the core, you know, if it stay true to the core was what his thing was. I mean, he was even like, what shocked me about that letter was the fact that he was willing for, it's like, get rid of Helm's Deep. Helm's Deep doesn't have that much to do with this. You know, it's like, this is Tolkien writing this. I mean, my God. But his point was that if you think about the core of the story, you know, that's superfluous to the, to the core of the story. And, mm -hmm. um, I do think, you know, that's one thing that's interesting specifically about the areas that I'm talking about with Sarah, uh, with uh, 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 Rohan and Dunland. And you think about the fact that the core of that story of that particular region at the time of Lord of the Rings is Saruman, you know, is Saruman's impact. They, they really did stay with that. You know, I think that, um, that that quote from his letters was really where what I had in mind, you know, when I was thinking about this as an adaptation mm -hmm. where they stay true to the core of each, you know, each area they go into the core of the story. Um, but yeah, Sarah, geez, you know, I wish I, I should have sent this to you and had you check it before <laughs> you could have reminded me of that, of that quote. Um, I wonder, actually, there was a quote that I used um, in the, in my thesis uh, that that's a, that's a, um, derivation of something that that Tolkien wrote himself about when he wrote uh, Beowulf and the Critics and I don't know if I can find it but it it's like all I had to do was switch a couple of words and it applied to the game and it was straight out of uh, out of his mouth oh I, I can't find it now but um, where he was talking about um, the extent of this of the story you know and he was making a, a assertion about beowulf that i thought was perfect for lord of the rings online unfortunately of course i didn't mark that particular passage so i can't find it now but i won't waste your time sorry it's okay um <laughs> matthew deforest is following up on his question uh, uh he says you half answered the question trish you got the context <laughs> down how do you analyze and write about things that are half in the text and half in the mind of the players, some of whom have made different choices in the game. The question's up there on the board for you to. Yeah, I was just looking at it and I'm thinking about that. Mm -hmm. I don't know, that's a really good question. Um, I, think, I think my assertion in the thesis is that even if the player is coming at it differently, you know, like for example, coming into one of these stories that I write about, um, well, there's two things about this. First of all, the way the quests are laid out is, you know, you're pretty much guided as a protagonist of the of your own story to, to follow a particular path. So one of the ones I'm thinking about in particular is the story of Athelward, which is one of the tra is traitor to country uh, example in Lotro. And when you get to the story, his you meet him earlier in the game, but when you actually get to the story that shows his betrayal, you've been guided. In other words, you, there's certain gates you have to get through that you don't get to that story unless you go mm -hmm. through those gates. So there is kind of a, um, 
uh, standardizing of a player experience by doing that. So all the, by the time the player gets to that point, every other player has gone through the same gates. You kind of have the same sort of point of reference, if you will. Um, the other thing, though, is, you know, I don't know. I think you could probably say the same thing about the Tempest or King Lear. You know, the audience member is going to come away with a different view or a different experience of that play from the person standing next to them. I, I don't know that it's that much different, really, from, uh, you know, uh, from that kind of experience or reading any any kind of literature, even reading Lord of the Rings. I mean, Lord knows we've got, you know, who's Tom Bombadil? <laughs> you know, oh, I mean, don't go down. That I don't way. even go there. But you know what I mean? It's like it's not a it's yeah. not a standard experience, no matter where you're talking. Mm -hmm. And I think it's true for the game, too. Maybe even more so. I don't know. But um I'm just trying to think if any if I've ever had any sort of controversial just, conversations just with your, other players. Just to take your analogy of the theater there, um, not just thinking about it in terms of the audience, but also thinking about it in terms of the players the on stage. Yeah. Because you have a core text, but there are different interpretations. I mean, on the That's globe true. at the moment is not only um, gender switched, but also color switched productions of Henry <sighs> Fourth Part One, Part Two, and oh, interesting. Uh, uh, which yeah. are, you know, a completely different adaptation. That they're not just simply taking the words and then switching right. to different people playing them. They're actually playing with that core text and reinterpreting it for the twenty first century. That's true. So, and we've seen we've seen Shakespeare, you know, played as if it was in Victorian times, right? I mean, mm -hmm. I've seen plays mm -hmm. of uh, Much Ado About Nothing where everybody's dressed in Victorian, you know, and it's Victorian type stuff. And then also you get down to, you know, I I remember and I specifically remember this with. Peter Jackson's The Hobbit only because I was paying attention. But like, for example, you know, when, when Jackson would, would be directing Freeman in a scene with Bilbo, Freeman would deliver it six different, the same scene six different times, mm -hmm. all different ways, six different ways. And then it was up to Jackson to pick which one he wanted, you know? So, mm -hmm. um, you know, that's true too, you know, which is the actors themselves it could have a different, you know, or one actor to the next you know, in the same role. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if, uh, Phil Boswell is just commenting along those lines. He says, well, people watching Richard III would react differently depending on whether they sympathize with York or Lancaster. Yeah, yeah. that's true. That's true. Or that, you know, this was a piece of, of, uh, of uh, oh, what's the word I'm trying to find? Propaganda. You know, Richard III wasn't as bad, you know, historically, blah, 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 blah. You know, so you, you you bring in what you, you know, you take your own stuff into the play with you. And I mm -hmm. think the same is probably true here, you know, uh, with the game. Okay. So I have one final question for you before we wrap this up. Uh, and uh, it's, it's a question I always like to ask because obviously you're here at the pinnacle of your Signum career. And yet we have large numbers of people who are either right at the beginning of their Signum journey or are coming towards that moment where they're right. having to choose what they're going to do with their thesis, etc. So if a student was about to embark on their own thesis process and they asked you for one piece of advice, what would it be? Well, the one that I think of is, you know, I would say do some research on the topic that you think you want to write about before you actually ever tell anybody at Signum <laughs> what it is you want your thesis to be. Um, I had started out early in my early days at Signum thinking that I wanted to do my thesis on Eowyn, which is absolutely a great topic. I mean, there's a mm -hmm. lot to be said, you know, about Eowyn. Um, but when I went and looked at what was already out there, I found that I was probably 10 to 20 years too late because a lot of 
really good academics have written some really good stuff about AON. And it wasn't so much that there wasn't more that could be written. I just didn't see what I could bring to the party. You know, there mm -hmm. was, I, I just felt like while there might be something that I could settle on and that I could go with, and Lord knows there's plenty of research, you know, I wouldn't have had that the challenge that I had, you know, trying to find research on AON. But I just felt that it had been treated so thoroughly and so well that I just felt like there was probably something more I could bring to the game, you know, bring mm -hmm. to the table. Um, so, uh, so I switched. And I guess that's kind of my second thing, which is to be flexible, because you may actually run into, as you're, you know, as you're, have picked topic A and you're going down, you're researching, you may find there's something that just totally gets, you know, grabs you. And mm -hmm. it's not necessarily the topic you originally were going to talk about, but oh my gosh, you know, this is really something I'm really passionate about. And I think it's something really worth doing. And I would, you know, say that the faculty at Signum are more than willing to have you come back and say, let me, let's talk about this idea instead. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, you know, like Corey reminded me when I was first starting out, you better really love your topic because you're going to be yeah. living with it for a while, you know? So mm -hmm. I would say, don't, you know, don't feel like you have to absolutely go with your first instinct. But I think, you know, in my case, my first instinct actually led me, you know, it's going to lead you to the right spot. Mm -hmm. So be a little bit more fluid, be, be, um, um, you know, uh, flexible and kind of do a little bit of homework just to see kind of what's already out there in the topic you want to talk about. And then if, you know, if it still feels right, great. And, and if you get, if you, something else comes up in the meet and, you know, as you're going through your research and it really turns you on, think about that. Think about shifting. So, and like I said, your faculty person, knowing Sarah will always help you with that. <laughs> Absolutely. That is what we are here for. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Is there anything else you wanted to add, Trish, before we close this thesis theater? Is there anything that you haven't been asked that you wanted to be asked or anything? Hmm. That you just want to Let me look at my notes. On to finish. Um, let me just see here if there was anything. Um, I think we covered everything that I wanted to kind of talk about. Okay, that's good. Um, you know, I mean, I don't want to ruin it for people. They should just go read the thesis. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Available yeah. in all good bookstores now. It or, is. Or well, it's even on my just... portfolio site, trishlambert.com. You can get it on my, you know, it's one of my sample writings. Free advertising right there. That's right. That's right. <laughs> obviously for the benefit of those who are watching us right now Trish's thesis along with all the other theses that have gone through this process are all available on the Signum website and uh, if you are a student at Signum then you can go in and select something from the shelf and have a good read of all the wonderful work that our past students have produced at the end of their master's degree journey and Trish congratulations because thank you very much. Thank you very you much. You worked really hard on this, and you know, like I said, you've been around with Signum for a while, and I'm so happy to be part of this final point of your thesis process. And um, congratulations, so so much on passing oh, your master's degree. And I appreciate you working with me on it. It was a great, great partnership. That's wonderful to hear. And <laughs> Kate Neville is saying congratulations, and she's done it in all Thank caps, you. and she's confirming that she is indeed shouting. <laughs> shouting. <laughs> Thanks, Kate. <laughs> okay. Well, um, those of you that are Lotro players, I'll see you in the game. Absolutely. Yeah. And for those of you who aren't yet Lotro players, maybe you want to think about it. Yeah, think about it. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay, so that brings our thesis theatre to an end. And thank you again so much. Thank you to everybody who has joined us here for this, uh, for this last hour. I hope you all found it interesting and informative. My apologies for the intrusion of first my husband and then the sunshine. Uh, the husband was easier <laughs> got rid of. <laughs> and thank you so much to Buddha for being so patient as to wait yes, elsewhere. Yes, as he waits yeah. elsewhere. And the dogs even got quiet, so that was good. Absolutely. So in the end, we got there. Okay. <laughs> um, so thank you very much again. And uh, till the next Thesis Theatre. Bye, guys. Okay. Bye, everybody.